Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Marquise Lupton. On the back end of the show, Scott Lamar speaks with author Annie Grace about Dry January and how participating in it could be life-saving. But up front, T.J. Griffin and Jose Rios are the owners of Creative Hope Studios, and they launched this business in hopes to provide alternative options to at-risk youth. Most recently, they installed a full recording studio in the five middle schools in Lancaster City, and I had the honor to speak to both of these gentlemen about this. I would like to welcome T.J. Griffin and Jose Flex Rios to The Spark. What's going on, gentlemen? How are you doing? What's up, good brother? Thank you very much for that introduction. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, um, before before we get into the meat and potatoes of, of things, um, can you tell folks uh, exactly what is Creative Hope and what you all do? Sure. Go ahead, Flex. So so what we are, uh, Creative Hope Studios, what we do is we build fully functional music studios and career exploration spaces in juvenile detention centers, school districts around the country. Mm. So TJ, he, he's ran programs with the youth for years, and I've done musical programs with the youth for years also. And during COVID, we've decided to put our programs together and create Creative Hope Studios. Now, that's one of the things that uh, that, that I wanted to uh, po- point out here, because uh, we typically heard about businesses mm-hmm. shutting down yeah. during um, COVID and, and, and the pandemic in and, and 2020. But you all decided to kind of buck the system a little bit and start a business. So can you take us to that moment where it, it was like, you, you know what? Let's do this. Yeah, sure, sure, Ken. And um, first of all, thank you for having us on WITF, Marquise, yes. all the work you've done in our community, uh, with organizations, you. with youth from media to news in our city, and to have this platform come and embrace you to bring our people and our culture more aware that WITF even exists. Hat goes off to you, good brother. Oh, so thank, thank you. you. So how we started this thing is me and Jose both ran programs in juvenile justice. I had the Vision program. He had the Dream Loud program. Mm-hmm. Under the umbrella of hip-hop culture, we taught kids the arts, engineering, rec- um, recording, Talk is how to change the drug trade into entrepreneurship, things mm. like that. When COVID happened, juvenile justice programs shut their doors to outsiders coming into the facilities and running programs with their kids. So the school, the, they stopped, the, they closed the doors to the churches, to organizations, to volunteers, mm. and to paid programmers and trainers. So both of our work just stopped during COVID, like a lot of people. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we didn't know. It was just, it was just no unemployment for us. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. But we have a wide network of leadership around the country in juvenile justice. So what happened during COVID, they started calling us and contacting us, asking if we could do Zoom sessions with kids and run programs through Zoom. Mm. Flex and I never did that before, but we engaged kids well, so we started doing it. Yeah. All of a sudden, Marquise, we're doing Zooms all over the country mm-hmm. with incarcerated youth. Wow. So the, the, something happened. Why? Why are we more busy now at home than before COVID were in person? Mm-hmm. We found out throughout the country, juvenile justice programs really are dependent upon outsiders to come in to do things with the kids. Mm-hmm. Nothing against staff members. I've staff member for 10 years. We do a lot. But at 5 o'clock, when, when admin leaves and counselors leave and JPOs leave, a lot of times the outsiders come in and alleviate downtime. When mm-hmm. COVID happened, all the doors shut, and a lot of staff members were overwhelmed and didn't have much to do with the kids. They were playing more spades, they were playing more basketball, and missing opportunity to build with kids. Yeah. That's when we were playing Xbox one day. Yeah. Flex said, why don't we take Vision programs and combine them somehow? I said, I think I know how we can do that, and we started Creative Hope Studios. Oh, man. So um, so that that first initial meeting as Creative Hope Studios, did you envision this, or, or was it uh, something different at first that became what it is today? Man, uh... When we first started the conversation during playing the game, um, we came up with the idea and 
set some structures in play that we wanted, and the next the following day we just moved on it. So it was more of an idea to put both of our companies together and, and start building studios. Mm-hmm. So it really it really was just that idea that day, and then we just kept it pushing after that. And the company the company was started with the with the six hundred dollar COVID relief fund yeah. that came out. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. The whole company was started with the whole, <laughs> whole thing company. from the website from the LLC to, to registration from everything was designed with that six hundred dollar. COVID relief check. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, for you, the listener that's listening, look, they started a business with $600. Man. So um, uh, before I get to my next question, if you don't mind me asking, what game was it? <laughs> it, was, Call of Duty. it was Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. I, I made him buy an Xbox. During <laughs> COVID. During COVID. 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 I don't play the games no more. He said, to get one, and that's how we formed the company. <laughs> all right. So then, um, so then how, how does the integration of uh, recording studios enhance the uh, learning and rehabilitation experience for the uh, students? So a few different things here. In juvenile justice, what we have to do a lot of educating the people in charge around the country and the leadership in charge. Because there's a lot of reform going on within our system, but they're not culturally relevant, relevant reform, and we help with that. Mm. So for the listener out there, hip-hop and rap music, you hear that all the time, but hit from KRS-One, hip-hop is something, rap is something kids do or listen to. Yeah. Hip-hop as a culture is what they live. So mm. in juvenile justice, they haven't found a way, and a lot of our schools across the country haven't found a way to meet our kids culturally because there's so much negative aspects of hip-hop music and culture, objectification of women, glorification of violence and drug trade. We're scared to use it, but we're missing the boat. Yeah. So we teach juvenile justice that when a kid comes under your care, even right here at the Lancaster Yick Center, mm. when a kid comes under our care of a county detention center, right away we take their clothing from them. We take them all. We give them county issue clothing. Then we say, with the clothing we give you, put your pants up, young man. Your butt should be shown to women and children. Put your mm-hmm. pants up. By the way, your name is not Ty Ty. Your name's Tyrone. These kids keep calling you Ty Ty. That's a street name. We don't do that. No, mister. My mom calls me that. We don't do that here, sir. Mm-hmm. That handshake you're doing with the snap and the pound, that's gang call. No, you're not, that's, that's not how you handshake here. That, that beard you have, you're 16. Are you Muslim? Do you Ramadan? You're going to shave that up. We're not going to allow that here. Mm. This is done in 98% of the county and state-issued juvenile detention centers around the country. They do this because we have a small amount of time with these kids to curve behaviors. A young man's butt shouldn't be shown to women and children. I get that. But what they strip of them is they strip culture. Mm -hmm. The way I dress and how I identify with myself and my name is my culture. The way I interact with my people and my surroundings is my culture. So we take all of that from the kid because we believe it's negative. There is negative aspects of it. Then we try to shove down their throat. Education they haven't bought into. Mm -hmm. Therapy they haven't bought into. They won't be under our care. So we teach the system how to have a culturally relevant space, hip-hop culture, to meet kids where they are, to express themselves, to create, and to find entrepreneurship opportunities. Because many kids, higher education is not for them. The arts is a viable entrepreneurship opportunity for the kids to save lives like we all did ourselves. Yes, and um, and you mentioned um, hip hop and hip hop culture. You both have a extensive background uh, in hip hop culture. We'll start with you, TJ. Can you tell the folks at home your background in hip hop and sure. um, things that you've done and the folks that you've been affi- affiliated with? Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. First of all, hip hop. I was a I wanted to be a rapper since a little boy. It was mm-hmm. my way out. When you when when kids from our community see people that look like them that come from our environments, we identify that what they do is possible. Yeah. That's why so many of us don't want to be lawyers and doctors. There's no one in our environments we see like that. Yeah. So I thought rap was my way out. Long story short, I never put the work in to do it. Through MySpace, I got into the music business, through some companies, and then I got into recording artist management and booking. So I did tour, man- tour booking for Mr. Cheeks and the Lost Boys and did management for Terror Squad's Armageddon for six, seven years. Mm. Through that, I met many industry, industry people through the culture and been blessed to work in the music industry and then used this, my experience to implement it into this 
to youth programs to capture kids' attention because when you have their attention, you can get a um, uh, mission across. Right, right. Yep. And me, I've just been I've just been a producer for for years. Um, I grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And I'm the only kid in my family who was actually into music. My grandfather was a musician also. He passed away. And I guess I got the music bug from him. Mm. Um, started producing music at in the teens and uh, produced for many people. I've produced for many 90s artists, 90s era artists, a bunch of uh, um, local people. Uh, Bravo Channel, uh, the Hulu Channel for background music for Andy Cohen's. Mm -hmm. So I've done a lot of music production and stuff like that through my years. So then how how does your uh, uh, background in in hip-hop tie into uh, the mission of of what Creative Hope Studio does? Hip-hop is the most influential youth culture on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Mm. Hip-hop governs every urban environment on planet Earth. Yep. So from inner city Lancaster to, to, to North Philadelphia to Kenya, African, to London, to Paris, to France, the urban environments are governed by this thing called hip-hop. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest selling genre of music today, and it's positioned to never change, continues to grow. So if it's that powerful and influence that much of our youth, why are not we using it? We know the culture. We are the culture. Mm-hmm. We know at the professional level how to use it and how to meet the kids where they are because we are the kids. So we took mm. all that knowledge together because you think a lot of times it's the studio. The studio is not really the... It's not. It's the cultural relevance that keeps the kids interested mm-hmm. where you have their attention. There's so many kids in the system that are not buying in. They cannot find their place. Mm-hmm. And they need something like this to help find themselves. It's an environment. You, know? mm-hmm. you place an environment in a place where uh, normally you wouldn't see that type of environment of expression. So we're giving them an outlet to express themselves, to learn different avenues in, in the entrepreneurship. And uh, right. we've placed, it's not just a studio. We're saying a music studio, but it's just not a music studio also. It's a career exploration space. So we've implemented so many different programs and stuff like that that they can chase these se- these separate dreams like podcasting, mm-hmm. uh, graphic uh, like graphic design, like uh, videography, things of that nature. So it's not just a music studio. Um TJ, you you did do a a TED talk. That's something that I I don't want to overshadow here. Uh, can you tell the listener at, at home what your TED talk was about? Yes, my TED talk is called the Paper Plane Effect, and the Paper Plane Effect is about the effect environments have on a child's belief system. I kind of mentioned this earlier in in, in our environments where me and Flex c- come from. A lot of times we identify we we want to find a way out, like. And money and material things is success to us. When you come from poverty-stricken environments, that stuff becomes important. I know once you attain it, it's different. But when you're a kid from that environment, that's what you want. So you see the basketball players, the football players, and the rappers that look like you, and they come from your environment. So you think that's the only way to get it or to participate in what they're doing in the environment. So what I realize is that if, 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 if I seen somebody else that wasn't a rapper that was successful, I would believe if they came from my environment, I could believe in the same possibilities of a future like those Those are better. So the paper plane effect's about that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of juvenile justice programs around the country, a few of them, not a lot, a few of them are using that TEDx talk to take new staff members as new trainees of the kids they're dealing with. Just like in our local school system, a lot of times we have people, our police system, yeah. we have people from outside of the community, from outside of our culture, teaching, educating, mm-hmm. and even yeah. policing our people. So the vision, pro- the, the paper plane effect is about being that person in your community so the kids can see it's not all rappers and athletes. There's also producers. There's also engineers. There's also entrepreneurs and business owners. There's also radio personalities, yeah. all from our community that you guys can you guys can get it to. Mm-hmm. So the, that talk was really about the effect environments have on our kids' belief. And and on the um, top of the show, um, I mentioned about um, about the school districts um, yeah. and, and you all putting uh, putting recording studios in these uh, four uh, four middle schools. Can you uh, tell us about that and, and how was that partnership formed? And do, do you plan on doing more 
in other school districts? Yeah, so we worked uh, for about a year and a half on trying to get these studios in the five middle schools in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, we got the okay to go ahead and build, and we, we built them in about a month, a yeah. month and change. And we knocked out uh, all, f- all five studios, and... Um, We've put uh, uh, we've trained all the staff members. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a great experience because this is the first time we've actually penetrated the districts, the school districts, and it's something that we want to do that we're looking forward to. Yeah, and uh, um, it was just a great experience in general. Yeah. So for a few years, people have been asking us because we we started in COVID. We're only three years old, January first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we've been asked to go into the adult system from mm-hmm. day one and asked to do the schools. But we were positioned and focused on juvenile justice, where yeah. our heart is. Mm-hmm. But as more schools kept asking, and I'm right here from Lancaster, Lancaster grown, I was like, we mm-hmm. need to let the school district of Lancaster get the first shot at this. Yeah. 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 And it went through a couple of superintendents all the way over to now, and it's done, and it's official, mm-hmm. all five middle schools, mm-hmm. where kids have extended day programs for recording and podcasting yeah. and graphic design. You have after-school programs. You have um, new clubs that they can do within mm-hmm. the space. Yeah. And it's an incentive-based program. There's some students in our communities that are not going to school yeah. or they're not behaving, and they're getting kicked out of classrooms because the academics is not for them. They really can't buy into it, so we're, we're kicking them out. We're putting them in the hallway or putting mm-hmm. whatever. We're, but if they have a culturally relevant space where they can find something else that they're good at that the school has not found a way to spotlight yet, absolutely, that's what we do. Yep. So we bring that space in there so that you can utilize it with the kids, incentivize it, get them to do things or not, and get kids that are not buying into nothing to find an opportunity through the arts. Yeah. I, I When I saw that, um, especially the one at Wheatland Middle School, because I graduated from <laughs> Wheatland, I was like, man, yeah. that's what I wanted when I was 14 years old yep. like like I, I i wanted that recording mm-hmm. studio in our school because i had friends that went to hemfield and manheim mm-hmm. township and in 1998 they had that yeah you yeah. you know wow. so so it, it it was like you know and we would ask about it and it was it was a little joke with our art teacher like oh well this will never happen and, wow. and the fact that it did you know yeah. um uh, speaks a lot to to what you all are doing so are there plans to uh, to continue this with other school districts? Or, yes. or, is there anything in, so, in the pipeline right so now? We, po- yeah. we position ourselves now to be able to provide for school districts around the country. We really mm. want to start here in PA because this is where we're from. This is our stopping ground. Yeah. And we have a team in place to do that. So there's a listener out there that works with a school district or, or has a family member that works. And this is not just for you know our area, Lancaster, mm-hmm. Harrisburg. This is, this is for anywhere in the country we provide yeah. services for. Mm. But we can't do these services without y'all help and y'all connections. So we plan to grow and continue to provide services in the juvenile mm-hmm. justice system. But now we're opening up to our school districts to try to get the kids before they before they fall into the system. Yeah. We've been also approached by a um, some, some adult some adult prison system programs and we're entertaining that idea as well oh wow that that i I mean that makes sense that 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 just seems to be the next yeah uh, the next step yeah so uh uh, again i i know i asked this uh at in the first segment but did you all have this expectation (laughs) like like this this year seems like you know all right well we we started this to to kind of make ends meet during the pandemic and, and now it's it's really growing to where you possibly could have like yeah. chapters or yeah. something yeah. Uh, around the country. Yeah. Well, well we, I, can't, I can't speak for Flex. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, well, but I, I visualize all of this. Mm. Yeah. yeah, all of this. Every every every. Of course, you get learned on the way, and you're surprised by things yeah. that help them. But I visualize this much bigger, mm-hmm. providing much more services for much more kids, and yep. being a nationally recognized program and. Yeah, probably. This is yeah. This is something that when we started the business, we spoke about and we said we wanted to be in all fifty states, and uh, we didn't know how we were going to do it, but we did it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? We went through a bunch of ups and downs and and turned stuff around. But um, yeah, the plan was to become, you know, nationwide and 
and, yeah. and go to the adult system and stuff mm. like that. But we just needed to take those steps. And our main goal and our main concern was helping, you know, the incarcerated youth first. And it just opened up some more doors for us so that way we can branch out into the adult system and the school districts. So then at the beginning, how did you all... Um pretty much sell this then because i i mean let's let's be fair here like Man, like like yeah. hip-hop does have um uh, yes. this, this negative yeah. stereotype over it, it does you, you know so so how do you how do you sell it in in a way to be positive so, so, so it's it's interesting you say that so we're hip-hop guys and we come from the culture and the community but that does not get you in the door of nowhere no. mm. So I also speak the language. I understand the juvenile justice system more than some of the most intelligent people around the country because I'm the kid they serve. Mm. So we take our lessons and our learn from the culture and also from hip hop music and the system, and it's pretty undeniable. Yeah. So what we, we, we could position themselves to have a, a program that's a well-oiled machine that provides services that if you don't take advantage of it, you're missing the boat because one day soon, you're going to have some kind of recording studio program for kids because it's a must. Yeah. It's yeah. a must. Yeah. And... and, and we're, we're the brand, Creative Hope Studios. Only one in the United States of America that's actually doing what we're doing in the way we're doing it. Wow. So uh, we placed ourselves as um, the top mm-hmm. Creative Hope Studios. So anyone underneath us, you're just not going to get the years that TJ's been in the juvenile uh, uh, detention, the juvenile justice system, and the years I've done in the juvenile justice system along with production. You're not going to get that with another company other than Creative Folk Studios. We are a sole source provider. We're sole source so we're providers. sole source and the only organization in the country that provides it how we provide it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We started doing COVID, Mr. Marquise, and uh, we are in 14 states with over 45 of these programs running, running. in all them states. So wow. we are positioned. We are hungry. We want to serve kids. We want to help kids. Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually changing kids. It's, there's yes. evidence and data showing in facilities changing kids. Mm-hmm. Kids that are not go, showing up, they, the staff can't get them out of the bed for nothing, are getting out of the bed because mm-hmm. Friday night they get studio time. Yep. That's incentive driven. Curving behaviors. Kids that are always fighting have yep. rival back. We was in Atlanta, Georgia. We got the biggest facility in Georgia. The mm-hmm. detention center in ATL. Two kids that tried to kill each other. Yep. Two staff members don't communicate well sometimes, so they came, brought these two kids to see the studio, <laughs> and they were both beefing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're ready to kill each other. Flex tells them to sit down and relax a second before the staff removes them. Mm-hmm. Within an hour, he had them working together, and they had squashed the beef three hours later by themselves in that space wow. where staff members said, we've been mediating with them for six months and can't get them to do yeah, it. Yeah, How'd you guys do it? We said, we didn't do it. Yep. The culture it's did. the culture. Mm. You guys opened the door to their culture. They were inside a space where their culture, they felt themselves, and they squashed their beef. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Yep, kids hardly going to school, and now honor roll kids going to school every day, just specifically to Colorado. Colorado. So then, gentlemen, uh, uh, we have about uh, 60 seconds here, so then... What's next? What's next is the school districts. We would really like to get yes. into the, uh, Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. There's so many alternative schools in the school district alone. We're in a position to really bring some cool things to the, to the school district. We want to get into Harrisburg. That's number one. But also mm-hmm. Lebanon, Reading. We're in talks with Philadelphia. There's a lot of red tape in that. Yeah. But they want to roll out a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But Berg, where you at? Somebody listen to this in Harrisburg <laughs> yeah. School District. Reach out to us, creativehopestudios.com. Mm-hmm. We're easy to find. We'll meet you in person. Yes. And we can do some cool things for your students. Oh, man. Gentlemen, uh, again, I would like to uh, thank you for joining us on The Spark. One more question here. Um, what, what, what has the feedback been so far, um, I, I'm assuming it's it, it's been positive. You you had some yeah. um, good yeah. testimonials that you um, um, already talked yeah. about, but yeah. yeah. So, so, so we have a bunch of recommendation letters to start with. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been doing well. We get a lot of feedback from the people who are actually utilizing 
the studio, which mm-hmm. is the majority of them. Uh, a lot of the times, you know, there is going to be a fail here and there, but that's not due to us. That's to, due the to the people that they put in place this, as the staff members to run that program. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do help back and support them with that and try to help them with training and, and things of that nature to get the project running. But our feedback is great. We, we're getting a lot of feedback from, from everybody, especially uh, the community. The community uh, uh, supports us, you know. So yeah. You were a big part of that early you on. You were too, definitely. The extra give a few years ago, uh-huh. yes, and his organizations came yes. through and supported us deep at the pop-up shop in Lancaster. Yes. You've been a big help in the community. We thank you, brother. Oh, absolutely. Yes, That's you. because Spark, I believe in it. Coming up after the break, Scott Lamar chats with author Annie Grace about Dry January and discusses exactly what it is. You're listening to The Spark Weekly. I'm Marquis Lupton. Welcome back to The Spark Weekly. I'm Marquise Lupton. The Spark's main host, Scott Lamar, recently sat down with author Annie Grace to discuss Dry January. This was a pretty awesome conversation, especially hearing about the health benefits. Many of us made New Year's resolutions. One may have been to reduce or stop drinking alcohol. It can be a challenge for those who drink on a regular basis, either on social occasions or as part of their lives. Dry January may be or may not be the path to that resolution, but it's how some who don't drink a how how some don't drink alcohol for a month to sample sobriety and possibly make not drinking permanent. Annie Grace explored alcohol use, the psychological reasons we drink, and how we are influenced to drink in her book, The Naked Mind. The book became a movement. Annie Grace is with us today. Annie Grace, welcome to the program. No, thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's start with Dry January. What is Dry January? So Dry January actually started in the UK as a charity movement to create awareness around alcohol dependence and and problems. And now it's it's gone global and it's just become synonymous with people taking a break for 30 days from alcohol and starting the new year kind of with a reset. When you say taking a break from alcohol, that sounds very simple. Is it that simple? It really depends kind of where your psychology is at. And it's funny that I say psychology and not physiology, not your body, because actually, if you look at the body, it's just the first day or two, even the first week that your body's going to be rebalanced, rebooted. But the whole 30 days, it becomes much more of a mental challenge. And I believe that that's true because we have so much influence and in programming that alcohol is the thing to do. It's necessary for everything we can imagine from going out to dinner to relaxing in front of the game to, you know, enjoying celebrations, all of these sorts of things. So we have this huge psychological nudge in our minds saying, hey, drink, drink, drink. And that's what makes it complicated. It's not really the physiological aspects. Most people who drink are not alcoholics. They're not chemically dependent. In fact, according to the CDC, only 10% of excessive drinkers are chemically dependent. So a tiny fraction of the population. But for a lot of us, it's just because we believe we want to drink. And so that's what makes it complicated. So, okay, let's try to relate the two. Dry January to what you just said. We believe we want to drink. So how does dry January influence you to not want to drink? Well, it's interesting because I think dry January, if if done, I'm going to say the quote wrong way with air quotes, can actually make the problem worse. 
So I've seen it so many times where people go into it and they are white knuckling it. They're using willpower. They're going through the entire month just saying sheer force of will. I'm not going to drink. And they're reinforcing misery because it's basically you're putting yourself on an alcohol diet. You're saying, I love French fries and ice cream, but I'm not letting myself have them. And then come February 1st, you are (laughs) two sheets to the wind. You've overdone it. And you have this little tick box in your mind where you said, okay, I proved to myself I don't have a problem. I did a whole 30 days. So obviously I don't have a problem. Let's just go back to drinking for the rest of the year. And I think that actually reinforces the fact that we like to and want to drink. I suggest approaching dry January with an experiment mentality, which means, you know, put down the blame, put down the shame, just say, hey, what might it be like? Even if I don't make it the 30 days, what is going on with me? Why do I think I want to drink? What do I think it's providing me in terms of benefits? What is happening when I feel that nudge and that craving? Do I really want it? Or is it just that I've been told that I should want it? And getting really curious about what's going on inside of you can change the entire experience. So what you're talking about is a mindset, really, rather than those cravings or focusing on, I haven't drank, you know, I haven't had a drink now in uh, 15 days or 30 days. It's okay. How's my life different? How's my thinking different while I haven't been drinking? Is that a good way to describe it? Absolutely right. And I can relate this to my own journey where I did this both ways. I approached, you know, alcohol and my relationship with alcohol with a okay, I'm starting to have repercussions. This is becoming a problem. I had been drinking for about a decade. I was drinking up to two bottles of wine most nights and I was feeling hungover. I was regretting things I said and did. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. And I kept asking myself the same question. Am I an alcoholic? Is this a problem? And then I take breaks. I take a 30 day break or I take a week long break. Every single time I take a break, I'd feel deprived. I'd feel miserable. And I'd actually drink more when I went back to drinking. And that was the cycle I was on for years. And then one day I actually approached it with a completely different approach. I said, well, why am I drinking? So I stopped asking myself the questions, am I the problem? Am I an alcoholic? And I said, why? Why did I used to not need it? I remember being a kid. I didn't need alcohol to relax at those birthday parties. I remember being, you know, I didn't drink a lot in college. I remember not needing it to de-stress before finals. Why do I need it now? And I actually went on this very systematic research of, well, does it actually chemically relax you in the brain? What is it doing to our neurons, to our brain function? You know, does it actually make us feel better? And what I discovered is that a lot of that stuff is just totally not true. There are two things that alcohol actually does. It will numb you to the point of being unconscious. In fact, they used to use it in surgeries. And it will make it for the first 20 minutes after you have a drink, you feel that euphoric feeling. But you trade that for two to three hours for that same drink of kind of a downer feeling when the alcohol starts to leave your body. And as I started to do this research, I was my mind was blown. I couldn't shut up about it, to be honest, because I was like, wow, all of these reasons that my mindset had told me I should be drinking actually aren't chemically true in my body. It's it's not relaxing me. It's making my stress and anxiety worse. It's not making things more fun. Chemically in the body, alcohol actually robs you of your ability to feel joy from things that don't involve alcohol. So I'm feeling less happy over time. And as I realized all this stuff, my mindset shifted and I didn't want to drink. And one of the key foundations of how I look at anyone's relationship with alcohol is that without desire, there's no temptation. So if you shift your desire, which is 
buried in your mindset, in often your subconscious mindset, you're no longer tempted to drink. Mm. A couple things there. You said that you couldn't shut up about it. Uh, I imagine that you weren't uh, speaking about it a lot in a bar. Well, there was a time when we were in Las Vegas. I had newly stopped drinking. We were there on a couple's trip with three other couples, and they were all having drinks at the pool, and I couldn't shut up about it. It is amazing that these people are still friends with me today. <laughs> I was going to say, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't want to hear. Well, how did they respond to that? They're like, okay, okay. And they actually... I think it stressed them out and they got probably more drunk than they would have otherwise. <laughs> and that was a big aha moment for me is that fear and it, it doesn't work. You know, when we, when we scare ourselves and we're like, it causes cancer and it's so bad for you and it causes 60 degree diseases and the world health organization says there's no amount of safe alcohol. All of those things just cause stress. But as drinkers, we've trained ourselves to what do we do when we're stressed? We drink. So anything that causes stress actually creates more drinking. And so it's very counterintuitive. But if you say, I'm going to take away the stress. And I'm and so I did, I did with my close friends, I did shut up about it. Luckily, I get to be on radio shows like this where I can talk all I want about it. But the reality was that that was not the right approach to, to shove down my friends. So you were drinking two bottles of wine a night? Yes. Did yes. you consider yourself a problem drinker? It was interesting because that term, again, kept me further from not drinking. And so when I look back at it now, and, and I remember when I stopped drinking, I, I had friends be like, oh, Annie, I'm so sorry. It must, have, it must have gotten so bad. I'm so sorry you had to stop drinking. And I was thinking, wait a second, I'm the one not drinking anymore. I'm the one who feels really good right now. You don't have to feel sorry for me. And so it was so interesting because that idea, I don't, I don't identify like with the word alcoholic or even I, I never call myself sober. I actually say I drink as much as I want whenever I want. I just haven't wanted to drink in more than nine years now, but it's because I hold it so lightly and so loosely that way. It really is. If, if I was to tell myself, I'm never going to drink again, when would I know I was successful? Not until I'm dead. I would literally never know I was successful. And that psychological burden of never again, you can't have this. Just look at a toddler. You, They don't even want something until you tell them they can't have it. We're not any different than toddlers. As soon as we're told we can't have something, it makes it that we want that thing. And so I like to just work with how my brain works, which is say, hey, this isn't a problem. I just want to look really objectively at this substance. Is it adding to my life or is it taking away from my life? And I did that over the course of a year of research. And during that year, I kept drinking. I said, I'm going to keep drinking, but just find out what's true about alcohol. And the truth is we know collectively more about something like Advil or ibuprofen than we do about alcohol, yet we're consuming arguably much more alcohol as a society than ibuprofen. Hmm. So when you're around people who are drinking, you never have any cravings or you never think to yourself, well, I'd like to have a drink. So I'll, I'll tell you why. I was around people about three, three and a half months after I had stopped drinking. And again, I didn't have any rules for myself. So I wasn't in a situation where I was sober. I could never drink again. And it was St. Patrick's Day and we were all sitting around the table and they were drinking these green beers and everybody was having so much fun. And it was a very like dinner party. Everybody was responsible. The kids were there. Everybody was going to drive their kids home. And I'm looking around this table and I'm thinking, 
these people are having a lot of fun. I certainly overreacted here. And I think that it's probably not that big of a deal. I probably, you know, I probably overreacted. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out, does alcohol itself do anything for me? Or is this fun? Because we're all together. We're all enjoying each other's company. The kids are playing and it's fun. And so what I did is a few days after that, I bought two bottles of wine. I locked myself in my bedroom. I got out my iPhone and put it on a little tripod and I filmed myself for the next three hours getting drunk and told the camera exactly how it felt the whole time. And that experience for me, it there was nothing fun. There was nothing fun. The edges of the room kind of went fuzzy. I remember thinking, this is going to be great. I'm going to, I'm going to get drunk. Then I'm going to go hang out. I didn't want to hang out. I felt a little nauseous. I kind of wanted to fall asleep. I started in the videos, which I could not watch for years. I started to yell at my kids. I was yelling at the dogs. The jokes that I was saying I thought were funny were not funny. I mean, it was the light went out of my eyes, my intelligence. It, it was so painful to watch these videos. And I now share them. I have a free alcohol experiment. I share them on day 28. And for so many people, they don't even have to go do the experiment themselves because they're like, wow. Because if you separate all the things that we're doing with alcohol that are really fun, going to that sporting event, you know, going to that dinner party, hanging out with friends, the barbecue outside, whatever, the vacation, those things are just inherently fun. And then the alcohol itself, it, it wasn't adding anything to it. So once I did that, no, I've, I've never had a craving after that. I'm curious. I think we all have been in situations where uh, we're not drinking, we're sober, totally sober, but we're around people who are drunk, people who are intoxicated. Seems like you've had occasion experiences where you can witness that much more. What do you witness when you're sober and others have had too much to drink? Uh, it's such a brilliant question because it was so interesting for this to kind of reveal itself to me because I was dead set on doing everything that I used to do in my life. I was like, we're if we're going out, I'm going out. So I remember one trip. I was in the UK. It was a business trip. We all went out to dinner. We all had so much fun at dinner. Everybody was drinking. I wasn't drinking. Then everybody said, let's go to an after party. Let's go to a bar. We walked into this bar. Everybody was still drinking, but the music was too loud. There was no ability for conversation. People were getting just sloppy. All the conversations that were happening stopped being intelligent, even though people thought they were more intelligent. And I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, am I really like, what's wrong with me? And I called my husband later that night and I was like, I was miserable. I thought I would still be having fun. And he goes, but what do you like to do? You like conversation. You like intelligent conversation. And what don't you like? You don't like just loud music and people being stupid. I and mean, he's like, you just don't like that as a person. But alcohol allows you to tolerate it. And I was like, that's so true. So my, my social life has changed and has evolved because I've been able to be really honest with myself about things I like. I also know people who still love going out to dance clubs sober or love doing karaoke sober. But so much of that numbing agent of alcohol was allowing me to do things that I didn't really like to do. And it's so interesting interesting because when I would go out, I'd be ready to like tell the inappropriate jokes, have fun, let loose immediately when I walked in the door. Everybody else was timid because they're waiting for their drinks to kick in. So I'd have to wait. And then there would be a little window where they'd have one or two drinks, but they'd still be themselves and we could joke around and it was super fun. And then they'd have three or four or five drinks. And then, you know, they just kind of like they're they're existing on a different plane than I was. 
And I was like, ah, it's no longer fun anymore. So I mastered, I think it's called the Irish goodbye, which is just, no one even notices. You just leave. They think you stayed all night because they don't know any better. And then the next morning, everybody's like, oh, it wasn't that fun. I was like, it was great. (laughs) I know you don't remember after 10 p.m. (laughs) I'm just curious, something you said right before our break about calling your husband, talking to your husband. Does your husband drink? So it was so fascinating. After I wrote The Snake in Mind, he, I was like, you have to, you have to, read this book before it publishes. I was like, I talk about our sex life. I talk about intimate details here. You got to read it. So he read it in a day and he was like, okay, just so you know, don't expect anything. Don't expect me to stop drinking. And I would always, you know, I'd go to the liquor store. I'd buy him a six pack on the way home. I'd order him a drink. I I, I didn't want to put any pressure because for me, it was really important that this is his own journey, not, you know, and about probably two years after he had read the book, he looked at me, it's like, I don't think I've had a drink in about six months now. I was like, really? And it's been seven years for him now. He huh. realized he had a drink, but it was very accidental. It was just sort of like, I wasn't doing it and it, it became less important for him. You know, and I hate to even bring this up, but I, I, I've heard of a country song that you're not as much fun since I quit drinking. I mean, I, I'm <laughs> sure there are people who have that kind of attitude that I just can't have fun with alcohol, without alcohol. I had a really close friend. We have been friends since before we can remember because we met in preschool. And when I stopped drinking, she called me one day and I, I was busy with two little kids. I'd also written this book. And so a lot was going on in my life. And she goes, you know, we haven't hung out in a while. It's like, oh my gosh, you're right. We haven't. And she goes, I have a confession to make. And I was like, what? And she goes, I just, I don't know how it's going to be without you drinking. We've been drinking together since, you know, we turned 21 and I don't know how it's going to be. And I was like, well, why don't you come over and let's find out? And so she came over and it wasn't all drinking games and, you know, puking in the backyard, but it was really heartfelt conversation on the couch and a lot of laughter anyway. And it was amazing that there was so much fear in her that I didn't even realize about me changing, but it taught me such an important lesson. When people react to you're not drinking, it's because they're afraid for themselves. They're afraid that you're going to become too good for them or that they won't measure up to you or that things won't be as fun or they won't know how to interact with you. And I reminded her, I was like, do you remember that we were laughing behind, you know, the the playground when we were like seven years old? <laughs> we weren't drinking then. She's like, you're right. It, it wasn't ever the alcohol, but we think it is. Are you healthier since you've stopped drinking? I think not only am I healthier, I literally think I look younger nine years later. My teeth are whiter, my eyes are brighter, my skin is better, my hair is thicker. It is probably one of the most impressive vanity things you can do for yourself is to stop. Oh, I've, I've lost about 13 pounds. It's, it's incredible sort of across the board. And that happened really quickly. What about uh, thinking wise, psychologically? Yeah, alcohol, the the function of alcohol in the brain is that it actually slows the synapses between the neurons. So it literally makes you think slower and slower and slower and slower until you're no longer conscious. They used to use alcohol as anesthetic in surgeries before they found safer alternatives. And so we imagine that we're more creative because our inhibitions are let down a little bit. But what's really true is that you can, you think slower And so your ability to remember things and access your own brain definitely increases when you don't drink. So what are the steps that people can take? 
So I think the first and most important thing is if you feel like you're over drinking and you feel any sense of shame or guilt about it is to recognize that you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. There's, you know, we've been given as a society, this like alcohol on a silver platter as the answer for everything, right? It's the answer to stress. It's the answer to having more fun, to loosening up in the bedroom, everything. And so when you start to look at that critically and say, is that really true for me? Is Are those things really happening for me? So number one is to let yourself off the hook. Realize that you've been doing the best you can with the tools you have. And we've just been given this tool that you can start to question in your own life, is it the right tool or not? And so that's self-compassion. And then number two is curiosity without judgment. So looking at your drinking and saying, okay, well, why did I want to drink that much? Why did I overdo it? What else was going on with me? But when we judge ourselves, we shut down that curiosity. And so we don't actually allow that we can question this because we have this false idea in our minds that if we want to change our drinking, something must be wrong with us. We must be an alcoholic. It must be a problem. But I would love for us all to just collectively say, hey, like, let's just get curious. I love the word sober curious or mindful drinking. Let's just get curious about our behavior and see what works for us personally. As I was looking into this, uh, I saw a number of, let's say, you know, uh, the Naked Mind and also Dry January. Um, there were recommendations for those who are chemically dependent on alcohol to not that this may not be f for them, because there's a lot out. You know, they could have some withdrawal symptoms. What do you say about that? We got about a Absolutely. minute left. So big disclaimer, if you feel like you can't go a day without drinking, you want to check with your doctor to make sure you're tapering and you're doing all the right things because you can have serious symptoms. Now, again, that is a very small percentage of the population, less than 10% of excessive drinkers, according to the CDC. But if you feel like that's you, absolutely check with your doctor. Hmm. Uh, so, but for others... Uh... Curiosity. I mean, that, that, that's one of my favorite words, one of the things we try to do in this program. But that curiosity would seem to be just don't focus on the drinking as much as what comes afterwards and the mindset that you have. Absolutely, Scott. Mm. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And if you could leave a message with our audience, what would it be? Be kind to yourselves, be curious, and don't beat yourselves up. Hmm. The Naked Mind is the book. There's more than just a book. Annie Grace is the author. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for tuning into the Spark Weekly. Please like and follow our page on Facebook as well as our YouTube page. I want to thank our guests again for coming in and thank you, the listener, for tuning in. This is the Spark Weekly. I am Marquis Lupton, and have yourself a nice weekend.